can really start here with, I, I, I'd just love to hear some of your background. And you were, were you, were you actually born in London or was it somewhere else in England? I was born in the West Midlands. I was born just outside Birmingham mm -hmm. uh, to a single mother who uh, moved around a lot. So I, I, I was born in Birmingham, but I don't have any memory of it. We, we, we moved soon after I was born, I think. But yeah, that's that's where I was born. I did. My family, though, is uh, many generations of Londoner, and I spent most of my most of my life in in London. Uh -huh. um, I'm I'm a. I happen to be born in Birmingham, but I'm I'm pretty much a, a Londoner to the bone. Uh -huh. <laughs> so you, you know, and and it's interesting looking at your what I know of your background. I mean, you had things like um, working for P and G, and now you're a writer. But you had turns for a long time in technology and, and entrepreneurship, you know, growing up, what were you, what did you like? What were you good at? And how were you, did you get inspired to go into the soccer? You like soccer? soccer. <laughs> it's a good, good English working class boy who did nothing. No, I mean, I, I've always been very eclectic, I think. So I played a lot of soccer. Uh, I started, um, kind of a magazine when I was, when I was about 10, you know, I had a, a typewriter and some kind of spirit duplicating technology and, you know, made made my own school magazine for a couple of years and I, uh, I did a lot of DJing back before DJs were like, you know, fashion trendsetters, just when you kind of played records for people to dance to. I did, did a lot of that. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a. I, I guess I was lucky in a way. I was kind of the first generation of, of personal computer kid. I got. Um, I remember seeing my first computer when I was seven or something, in a, at a university open day. But um, a friend of the family got you know an Apple before Apple was had Macs. You know, it had, had an Apple. Apple yeah. II. I seem to recall it was called an Apple Pie II, but that must be my, my memory. Cause I think it was actually called yeah, I don't think II. it was ever an Apple Pie. <laughs> no, I, I just in my head, that's what it was called. <laughs> and uh, and then I got, uh, you know, my mum saved up at the Christmas of, I think it was 1982, that this computer called the Sinclair ZX81 came out in England. Had like 1K of memory, plugged it into the TV. Um, and I got that for Christmas, and that that kind of got me hooked on programming. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually, she managed to scrape together the money for. I remember the day she came home with a 16k memory extension from my 1k computer, and I remember feeling like I just had infinite memory that there was no no possible way I could ever use as much memory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, I I think I sort of divided my time actually between playing music and playing soccer and, and writing, you know, for the school newspaper and, um, and, uh, and, you know, playing around with my computer, which in those days meant programming. I mean, it was, it was generally basic programming and you, often you would find a program in a magazine or something and you would type it into your computer yourself. But uh, in the early days, there was not a lot of software that you, you bought, um, and if you did, it had to load in off of a uh, audio cassette tape, which was a very hit and miss process. Oh right. right. Um, so uh, yeah, I think 
So the sort of the technology plus writing plus you know other random things was was probably there from an from early age. Mm-hmm. Well, so you went to it was it University College in London? University College London, which is uh, part of the University of London, um, and uh, I did well. So I sort of I, I wasn't planning to go to university. No one in my family had really been to university. Um, my I come from a family of churchmen. My my grandfather was a minister in the United Reformed Church, and my mother's brother is still a minister in the United Reformed Church. And uh, so it wasn't. And uh, you said a university wasn't really part of the plan, and I left school at 18 and DJed my way around Europe for a while, um, which was exhilarating. Mm-hmm. And I spent some time in Norway and fell in love with Henrik Ibsen and learned to speak Norwegian. And then I came back to London when I was like 21 and felt like I really wanted to go to university, and I found out that I could study Ibsen. Uh, at the University of London, and so I called them. It was after the deadline, if I remember. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I called and said, "Hey, I'd like to, you know, come study Ibsen at university." And the Scandinavian Studies Department at the University of London doesn't get many kind of inbound inquiries. <laughs> I don't, it's not the course that everybody's desperate to get onto. And I remember this lady, who you know, I now know well, but at the time I didn't. Obviously, was. Um, a little taken aback and like, well, why? And I said, well, I, you know, I spent some time in Norway and learned to speak Norwegian. And she immediately switched to Norwegian, uh-huh. um, which I should have seen coming, I guess. But I, her name is Marie Wells, and she's one of the foremost scholars of Norwegian literature in the world. But, you know, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And um, so I was able to hold my own in conversational Norwegian, having just, just come back from Scandinavia. And... Uh, and they sort of, despite the fact I'd missed the deadline, they, they said, well, you know, if you've got the got the grades, which I just about had from, from high school, um, we'll, we'd love to have you. So I talked my way onto this course without a huge amount of awareness of what I was doing. But uh-huh. I knew I'd, I'd get to go study Ibsen. And so I um, paid my way through college by working uh, 20 hours a week in a liquor store and Sundays in a bookstore. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, spent the rest of my time studying Ibsen and learning to speak Danish. Spent a year at the University of Copenhagen and also sort of continued with the journalism. So I got very involved in the student newspaper at the University of London um, and became its editor. And um, P&G used to advertise in the student newspaper to get people to apply to go to P&G, mm-hmm. go work at P&G. And... Uh, the P&G guys asked me if I would be willing to apply. Um, and I was actually planning to go into journalism, and I got a job offer from uh, a newspaper in London called The Independent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd got a little disillusioned with journalism. It wasn't quite the, um, the truth-seeking missile that I kind of hoped it would be. Mm. Uh, yeah, as you know, most, most journalism is not... Uh, go win an, a prize writing an award-winning story that changes the world by uncovering some amazing truth, right? It's, right. It's, it, naturally, it's more, oh, we need to do a thing about this. Here's the press release. You've got a few hours, you know, call a few people, write it up. And um, 
and the money was awful because everybody wants to go into journalism. So if you're a student who is lucky enough to get a job in journalism, you're not going to get paid very much because kind of the job is its own reward. Right? Right. And Proctor, on the mean hand, on, 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 in the meanwhile, um, I, I kept saying no to them, and they kept increasing their offer, which felt very flattering when you're a 20-something kid with no experience. Yeah. Uh, and I actually, I, I, uh, I didn't take the independent job, and I kept saying no to Proctor because this is very random, but I was involved peripherally in uh, a startup noodle bar in London. <laughs> um, so it's a very entrepreneurial uh, Asian British guy, and he started this very hip noodle bar, uh, which was called Wagamama. Uh-huh. Um, and he subsequently sold it. You may have heard of it. We have, we have Wagamamas in the US now. But um, he, the, the internet was, this was like 94, 95. The internet was this thing that everybody was hearing was going to be big, but no one quite knew why. Is the honest truth about the, as I remember the early days of the internet. Right? What year were we talking and, about? 1995 then or something? Yeah, yeah. I graduated in 95. Okay. So, um, and he thought he might want to, you know, take the Wagamama brand into the internet world, like by creating an ISP or something. Mm -hmm. So um, I kind of got involved in in the idea that we were going to launch uh, some kind of internet brand for Wagamama. But then um, the founder was building his second restaurant and ended up spending all his money on the kitchen. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh -huh. So, so then I. Uh, I decided to take P&G's offer because uh -huh. um, he basically spent my budget on, I don't know, yeah, fancy yeah. Japanese cooking equipment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's how I ended up at P&G. Uh -huh. uh, that, that was in 95. Did you go to P&G first in England or over to the, to the US? Oh, in England. In England. Um, yeah, they... Uh, one of the things that appealed to me about that actually was they had just opened a very beautiful, modern uh, corporate office uh, just outside of London. Mm -hmm. So I got, a reverse, I got a reverse commute, which was, you know, pretty, pretty convenient. And um, I got to work in this very spectacular, new, you know, open uh, office building that's probably not that unlike a lot of modern office buildings, but it was quite groundbreaking at the time. It was very light and airy and you had big atrium and um, that was very appealing. And so I went, I went there and uh, they put me on um, color cosmetics, which was a little surprise, but I was launching um, a color cosmetics range for Oil of Olay. Uh -huh. uh, it was my first job at Procter & Gamble. Me and, me and many other people, obviously. So what was the leap from, from there to start to think about RFID in, the, in like the supply chain and all that? Oh, it was, it was the classic Ibsen color cosmetics RFID route that everybody, everybody follows, really. <laughs> exactly. um, so uh, so what, what happened there was I launched my brand. I worked very hard. Everybody worked very hard. And the way we do, um, I think anyone who's been at Proctor for you know, any reasonable length of time, and I was there for nearly nine years, by the way, you never really leave, right? It's like 
like you, you so I you notice I still say we even though it's kind of they I guess. <laughs> right. but the way the way, way we launch um, brands at, at Proctor is um, you do a test market first in fact you may do several as you as you fine-tune your launch launch plan um, so you take a small area normally an area that's that's uh, served by uh, some discrete TV channels so you can advertise um, on television but you are only available in the stores within that TV region. So if you live in that region, you'll think this product has, has launched everywhere, but in fact, it's just within your region. Mm-hmm. And you do that to sort of mitigate risk and, and make sure everything's working the way you want it to work before you, you invest in the full, full national launch. Um, and Olay Cosmetics, we did its third test market uh, in the UK, and it went very, very well. We actually did it in the southwest of England. And um, the, the results were sufficient for a national launch. But the, the national launch was several percentage points of market share worse than in the, the town test. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone had told it that was all built in by the way that was expected mm-hmm. but it was very frustrating to me to see like a whatever we got like a, a 20% share of the market in, in the town test and a 15% share of the market in, um, in the launch mm-hmm. uh, and I should stress those numbers are made up I can vaguely remember what they were but that would be even now would be considered confidential but, but yeah. there's a substantial drop off in market share and I really wanted to understand why. Um, and also, when I went shopping to get my groceries, I would always, product people always do this. This is, this is fairly normal. You go and check your, what your product looks like in the store. You go and, you know, you go and see how it's, how it's merchandised and whether the store is like, you know, doing it the way they're supposed to be doing it, whatever. And I'd go to my grocery store or wherever I was going and I would look and, a lot of our most important products were not available. They were out of stock. Um, And in particular, there was a particular shade of lipstick. So when you launch a color cosmetics range, you're going to have 40 or more different shades of lipstick in the range. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're mainly browns and reds, but there are subtle differences, and that's, that's very important to be successful in the cosmetics market because different colors suit different people and, you know, go with different clothes or whatever so you you know a lot of men might think that there's there's like a red lipstick but no there's there's lots and there's lots of shades mm-hmm. and um but you know some shades are much more popular than others and we had one particular brown shade it was kind of a neutral mid-brown that looked good on everybody and we had spent a lot of money sending miniature versions of that lipstick through the mail to i can't remember but it was like it was like several million British women. I mean, it was a very expensive, ambitious program. And the idea being that they would try the lipstick and then go buy one. And that particular shade was always out of stock, which is frustrating as hell to me. And so I, you know, I checked with my supply chain guys and we'd made plenty of them. In fact, you know, we'd anticipated that it would be very successful on the back of this sampling program. So we had lots in the warehouse. And whenever I talked to the sales team who dealt with the retailers, they would say, well, it's probably just that one door that you want them to go into, which 
you know, I've learned in business that's always bullshit. I mean, it's improbable <laughs> that there's only one that there's only one store that has a problem, and the brand manager happens to go into that. That's the least likely explanation. Uh-huh. Right? It's more likely that you're noticing a pattern. Um, it's the same thing, by the way. If you know, when your boss takes home a product and it you know catches on fire in his bedroom or something, it, that's <laughs> not that's the only one that does that. That's you have a major problem. You'd be amazed how many businesses. You know, hope for the best and hope that they just got unlucky. But um, <laughs> so I wanted to get to the bottom of this. And I mean, the first thing I did was I went and did did a night shift in my local grocery store. I had the sales team. Because so I wanted to understand what their process was. So that was the first thing. Um, and then the second thing was I... We did an in-store survey where we had, I forget, like 40 people around the country go into local stores with a clipboard and a list of important products that we made and make a note as to whether they were on the shelf or not. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had a couple of – there was this very quantitative data point, which was I was able to like make a weekly chart of watching these out-of-stocks move up and down. And what we found was that – most products were in stock in you know ninety five percent of stores, but there was a sort of a top ten where between one in five, or in the case of my lip, my lipstick, like about forty percent of stores were out of stock. When we went to check, so this was bad. It was very interesting watching the top ten kind of move around week by week, mm-hmm. um, and at first there was no discernible pattern. Um, and so that was baffling. There was something going on, but we couldn't figure out what it was. And then the um, the in-store experience was amazing because, so this is like 1997, something mm-hmm. like that. And um, you may remember that probably in, the, I forget when, the mid-80s or the early 90s, um, George H.W. Bush, you know, got caught in one of these kind of media gotchas where he went on a you know, photo op to a grocery store and was amazed to see a barcode reader. Right, I remember that. And was like, oh my God, how touches this guy? He's never seen a barcode reader before. And that was telling, right? Because um, the barcode was early 1970s when that kind of technology actually got developed. But it didn't really become popular uh, until computers and lasers and things became cheap enough and so it was somewhere in the late 80s early 90s that barcodes became commonplace mm-hmm. um, and what had happened was a lot of retailers had assumed that somehow because they were scanning barcodes now and that was connecting to some kind of computer inventory system that they were always in stock of everything and, you know, but what I found was, like, the the guys who refill the shelves overnight in the local grocery store, they have no access to that information. Mm-hmm. What they do is they literally were tearing off a piece of, of cardboard box and getting, like, a Sharpie and wandering around the store making scribbly notes as to what they needed to go get. Um, and they were also, this particular store was... They were kind of, their performance was measured by, they had these um, big rolling cages 
that they would load up and then they'd roll them onto the shop floor and unload them onto the shelves. Mm-hmm. And they were measured on how many roll cages they put out, which naturally meant that they were, the first thing they would do is like go replenish the bounty or the, you know, the, the, the paper, the toilet paper or, or the big stuff, big yeah. white <laughs> stuff, right? Because they could, they could burn through their roll cage quota very quickly. So you can imagine the lipstick, First of all, they weren't going to look and see which shade was out of stock. They just noticed that the lipstick was out of stock and they needed to put some more lipstick. Yeah. It was also a very low-priority item for them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this, this illusion of sort of perfect information created by the barcode was just way off. Um, and that kind of got me to what the pattern was in the out-of-stock because I eventually, and kind of one of those things where it's like obvious retrospectively, but it wasn't obvious to me or anybody else looking at it at the time, um, out of stocks was tracking with demand. So every time we advertised something on television, uh, Procter doesn't advertise things unless it knows the advertising is going to work. So if you see a Procter ad, you can be pretty sure that's driving volume for them, right? Mm -hmm. And... um, so people would go buy the thing being advertised, uh, creating a peak in demand. They'd clear off the five or whatever they were on the shelf, uh, and it may or may not get replenished quickly. And if it did, it got cleared out again quickly because there was nothing about the the restocking process that was in any way geared to sort of match increasing demand, right? The guys would, would notice there was a hole on the shelf, or they wouldn't, and when they did, they'd replenish. Mm-hmm. So the reason... And I actually was able to, nine out of the top 10 out of stocks mapped very precisely to the most advertised products of the week. The only exception, the only exception, I remember this very clearly, because I wanted to get 10 out of 10, right? I I figured out the problem. It was like, yay. But the only exception was a a VIX uh, cold care product. And I called the, um, we we weren't doing TV advertising but I called the brand manager and, you know, is it, is it a good or a bad cold season right now? And he said, it's a really good cold season. Now, in Vic's brand manager language, a good cold season is when everybody has a cold, right? right? So it's, it's the opposite of what you might expect. So there was some virus going around and that was driving Vic's off the shelf. So in the case of Vic, the uh, you know, illness was the, uh, the alternative to advertising. But, um, and once we did, once I had that insight, uh, we ran the numbers, and that got me straight into the CEO's office. It was my first trip to the U.S. was when the, the CEO's innovation board like called me in um, because the basically we were paying to advertise products that no one could buy, oh, and yeah. because we knew we were going to be advertising them, we were making extra that weren't making their way to the shelf. So when you added up all the economics of this, it was truly horrendous. Um, and it was all caused by the fact that there was not enough information available about what needed to be replenished on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And so the other question that I was being asked was, uh, well, how, what's the solution? Oh, there's no solution. There's no way to solve this problem. You know, there's no point worrying about it. Kind of thing. And um, this is a very random story, but I had also become interested in uh, what at that time were called smart cards. Mm-hmm. So retailers in the UK had just adopted uh, various loyalty cards. These things are incredibly common now, right? But again, in the mid-90s, they were, I think they were just starting. And 
one of the retailers I was working with had decided to choose a card with a chip in it rather than a card with a magnetic stripe. And I wanted to understand why. So I was talking to the manufacturer of that chip card who showed me, who said, oh, even, you know, even more interesting than the chip card is this thing. And they showed me, I didn't even know it was called RFID at the time, but they showed me a, a radio-enabled chip card. It was a credit card with an RFID tag in it, but mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Um, and, you know, I think I was driving, I think I was stuck in, like, rainy traffic driving back from that meeting or something, and I was like, huh, what if I took the, the, the radio microchip out of the credit card and stuck it in my lipstick? And then, you know, could I, could I then know what was on the shelf, like having the shelf talk to the lipstick? And, you know, the first objection someone might have to that is, well, that's very expensive. But because we understood the cost of the problem, uh, it started to be like, well, we, we could actually afford, you know, to spend quite a few cents on this per, mm-hmm. per unit because it's such a problem. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, my... my you know, having having you know gone through the world where one k of memory felt like enough to the world where you know megabytes and gigabytes were what we talked about, uh, I was very aware of of how even without knowing much about like Moore's law or something, I was very aware of how things got cheaper uh, in computing. So the idea that with volume these little radio chips would become you know insignificantly priced was was well within my grasp. Yeah. Um, so that was the RFID piece of it. Uh, so when I went to see the CEO, and uh, it was just around Thanksgiving um, 1998. was my first trip to the US. Uh, and it's funny because they called me and said, uh, yeah, we want you to come see the CEO like you know, the day after tomorrow. But they didn't realize I was, they used an internal extension number. And Cincinnati did not realize that I was in the UK. <laughs> so everybody had to really had to scramble to, to take this meeting. Um, but uh, that was that was when we first had the had the conversation. That was the first time I went to visit MIT as well. I somebody at Proctor said, Oh, we know we have we have some sponsorship with the MIT Media Lab. If you're gonna be in the US you should go meet those guys. Maybe they're doing something that, you know, you can use. Um, so that was that was how we got from, you know, lipstick and Proctor to to RFID, it was really trying to solve this apparently trivial problem of, you know, you can't get the right color lipstick in your local grocery store. But it became very apparent to me really quite quickly that we had a major information problem. And the information problem was, you know, okay, it's nice you've got the internet. It's nice there are computers everywhere, but they don't know, they don't know crap about the real world, right? Mm-hmm. They, they know what we tell them. Um, and there's a lot of information that it's just not practical to tell our computer systems, so our computer systems don't know. Um, in a way, then, there may have been the problem was being exacerbated by the belief in a lot of kind of corporate suites that uh, somehow barcodes and computers made it less necessary to go see what was going on in the real world because somehow there was this perfect information, yeah. uh, which was just not true, right? So um, that was that was the... That was the, the the thing that led to RFID and, you know, led to this. Well, the Internet of Things came a few months after that um, because part of the problem was at that time, the RFID world, which was quite primitive, thought the main benefit of RFID was you had a chip, you had memory, 
you could store a lot of information on the thing. Um, and that was impractical for many, many reasons. And so the really the most novel idea I had, and this was some, something that came to me at about the same time it came to a couple of the MIT guys I was talking to, was, well, we have the internet now, right? So why, why are we putting all this information on the thing? Why wouldn't we put the information on the internet and just have the chip you know, point to the internet? Um, and that seemed to have lots of advantages to us, not just cost advantages. You know, like if you lose track of the thing, you still have the information and you want the information to be accessible even if the thing is not. So, you know, of course you want to have the information there. But even then, like 98, 99, um, the internet was not very broadband. It was a lot of dial-up still. Um, it was kind of the days of AOL, right? And I think that seemed like a huge stretch yeah. to just about everybody. I remember the the initial, like, they used to call it read-only versus read-write, and the chip guys, who were the thought leaders in RFID, really didn't want to give up having memory on the tag. They thought that was their advantage versus barcode. They could sell more you know, memory, which made them more money. Uh, no one trusted the internet. The kind of the auto ID, RFID guys didn't really understand networking. Uh, networking was the way for computers to connect to one another. Um, it seems funny to look back on it now. I mean, it's only like 15, 16 years ago, and a lot of what we're talking about now seems trivial, right? right but right. at the time, it was it was surprisingly contentious. Um, and so the Internet of Things was a term that I came up with. I'd been talking about smart packaging. I mean, this is there's a lot of PowerPoint. A lot of given the same PowerPoint presentation to you know hundreds of executives in P&G in, in, in dozens and dozens of meetings as we tried to build a consensus for this idea. And um, I, smart packaging wasn't really getting it to people because, you know, a smart package could be a package that was easier to open or, you know, something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I also wanted to make it clear that this was somehow connected to the internet, which was a big corporate buzzword in 98, 99. And all these executives who'd never touched a computer six months previously, you know. Remember, Don Tapscott went to present at Procter & Gamble to the executive team, and after that, they were all kind of mansplaining the internet to us, <laughs> which was really funny. Because these are the same guys who you sent them an email and you got a piece of paper back in the internal mail, which was a printout of your email with some handwritten comments on it. That was, that was how they were replying to email, but... <laughs> You know, I think John Chambers went around, did a lot of presentations. People like Don, Don Tapscott did a lot of corporate presentations. And suddenly, you know, these guys who were as old as your dad, right, were suddenly trying to explain to you what the Internet was. Right. Uh, and so it was it was a bit of smart internal promotion by me to, to you know, emphasize the Internet part, which now I could do because I've become convinced that these chips needed to connect to the Internet. So... And, and the word things, by the way, was was something that the like MIT Media Lab were using. Like Neil Neil Gerstenfeld at the Media Lab, you probably know, you know, he had a consortium called Things That Think. He'd written a book called When Things Start to Think. Right, I remember all that. Kind of, kind of ironic, actually. People still talk about machine to machine, and 
But that's not what you want your things to do. You don't need to invest in computing power for your things to do any any processing, you know, which is what he meant by thinking. Yeah. You really just need them to 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 share a, a little bit of identity information, maybe some sensor type information, and then you know that becomes valuable when it's aggregated with other data and gets processed. And you may as well put that processing in the cloud, which you know was inconceivable in the late nineties, right? Right. Um, everyone was, everyone was still excited about the fact things were digital. So, um, but that's where things came from. So you know, Internet of Things was this. Well, I want to talk about the internet, and then you know, there's this things word that Gershenfeld and other people are using. So, you know, let's have a joining word, which I chose all probably four would have been better. But anyway, um, and it became the title of a talk, uh-huh. and I gave that talk like a million times over the next five years. Um, so, as you can tell, everything was highly strategic, and uh, and well thought through. Yeah. Now, it was very much a case of. <laughs> Of one random thing leading to another random thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so those those billion presentations were they all within P and G, or did you? When did you start branching out and talking to others about it? Well, I went to see the CEO in Thanksgiving '98, and he said, "It's great now. What do you want to do?" And I wasn't really. I, I I was still young enough and junior enough to think that once I got to the really smart, highly paid people, they would know what to do next. <laughs> but you know, they they didn't have a clue, <laughs> and so. Um, I had bumped into a wonderful character, uh, a guy called Alan Haberman, uh, at a RFID standards meeting in Belgium. About the same time, I you know started like getting to the C-suite at Proctor, mm-hmm. and Haberman um, was a real throwback. He had been CEO of. I think they were called First National, like some northeastern grocery chain in the 70s. And he was the guy who chaired the standards committee that developed the barcode. He was an early champion of the barcode and had then kind of his career had become, he was chairman of the ISO committee on RFID and he was very instrumental in the, the, what was then called the Uniform Code Council that was the barcode administrative standards body. And, uh, uh, you know, he was the kind of guy who would, he was like mad, man. He would, he was like in his seventies when I met him, but he'd have a couple of martinis at lunch, and, you know, try and pinch the waitress's ass. I mean, it was like really like, wow, well, this is what seventies was like. And it's kind of here sitting, sitting in front of me. And, um, he was a force though. And he had this idea of having the uniform code council sponsor some research at MIT. And I had this idea of working with a couple of particular re- researchers to, who were kind of of the same mind about driving this, you know, internet-enabled RFID sensor network and building that out. And so, um, you know, Haberman sort of drove the idea of creating a research consortium at MIT, uh, and that became the Auto ID Center. And then, you know, I was expecting my involvement to kind of, you know, dissipate at that point and I would get back to marketing, you know, whatever the hell uh, I was supposed to be marketing and um, MIT sent me an email saying, we want you to come be executive director Mm -hmm. and I was like, but I'm not an engineer and they said, well, we think you are and I was like, well, I guess if MIT, you know, announces that you're an engineer, it's like you guys you know, you can can run with me so I I was I sat down with a guy from Cincinnati who was in town and 
work. I was like, you know, MIT want me to go work there. And he was like, oh my God, um, I'm supposed to tell you no, you shouldn't do it, but um, you absolutely should. That's amazing. And, uh, and then the next thing I knew, he went running about at Cincinnati and P&G decided they would lend me to MIT. Uh-huh. Which I think it's quite unprecedented, uh, which was great because it meant, you know, it was like, I mean, the Ultra ID Center was, MIT basically had a spare stationary closet that they moved the stationary out of, and that was going to be my office, right? And we really had a little bit of seed money from Proctor and a little bit of seed money from, um, from the UCC, but there was no guarantee that anything was going to happen. And I was expected to quit Proctor and, like, move countries. Uh, who the hell knew where it would lead, right? right. So um, Proctor deciding to loan me was great because I, my salary was assured and I could go back and work for them and, you know, they paid for me to relocate and everything. So, um, yeah, that 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 was a really interesting development. So um, that's how we got into the, the auto ID center piece of it. And that's when the presentations really stopped being presentations to P&G and also to Gillette, which was a separate company at that time, but they were very supportive at the beginning, and I spent a lot of time with them too. So the founding sponsors of the Auto ID Center were Procter, Gillette, and the Uniform Code Council. Huh. Uh, and then after that, my, my pitch was to get more sponsorship, right, and to start building consensus around our vision. So that presentation became um, you know, something I'd do internally at MIT when various potential sponsors would come visit to see what we were doing. Um, there were a lot of, you know, this was a sort of days just before the dot-com bust. So there were lots of conferences that people wanted speakers at, and people were always asking me to go speak at those. So, you know, on, on MIT's dime, I was traveling all over the U.S. and in many cases the world doing this pitch. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes to, to, to six or seven executives in a, in a, in a meeting room, and I remember, like, one time, like, I got invited to go and present in Glasgow at some European conference, and there must have been, like, 5,000 people there. So um, just again and again, the same slide uh-huh. uh, uh, called the Internet of Things. Uh-huh. And um, there you go. So that's, that's, that's how that happened. Interesting. So the, then uh, the Auto ID Center, I mean, that, that, but that really turned into something. I mean, you ended up, you know, yeah. labs all over the world. and We, uh, I mean, basically, the, I remember standing up like after about two years and I'd drawn a curve and I said, you know, this time next year we're going to have twice as many sponsors. And um, basically the number of sponsors doubled every year is what happened. Mm-hmm. And there was a, just a real, real simple. You just said you talked to Bob Metcalf before, but there was a real Metcalf effect on that, which is, I think, um, sponsors encouraged other people to become sponsors, mm-hmm. uh, and people were more likely to become sponsors when they saw there were a lot of other sponsors there. So, you know, once we got the first six or eight, you know, the next ten were easier, and the next twenty were easier still, and and so, you know, we went from three sponsors in. October 99 to we closed with 103 sponsors four years later Um, and that generated a lot of cash and and we moved from being worried about I moved from being worried about people not thinking our idea was a good one to people thinking our idea was so good that they better do something like it 
right? And mm-hmm. what we definitely didn't want was, you know, national standards or regional standards. And most of the companies that were sponsoring us, you know, Procter, Walmart, and so on, uh, were global. So they didn't want that either. So my solution to that problem was to as quickly as possible get uh, um, established in other regions so that if you were in Japan, for example, which was a big challenge, you know, the Japanese, this is why Japan was still a major tech economy kind of before Korea you know, sort of took, took over. Mm-hmm. Um, they were going to do their own thing. Mm-hmm. And that would have been deadly. You know, finding a very influential academic in Tokyo and opening a lab there and taking some of the money we'd raised. And, you know, MIT was a little, I'm sure, but transferring money from MIT to, you know, Keio University in Tokyo or Fudan University in China or wherever was essential yeah. to making sure we kind of had a, a fairly harmonious global approach. Also, making sure that all the countries of the world were well represented. And it was much easier. I mean, I, I, I've never done the math, but certainly for Japan, we ended up with a whole bunch of Japanese sponsors mm-hmm. um, that we wouldn't have had. Same in China, actually, as I think about it. So probably the cost and the benefit were aligned very well. But for me, the goal was not get sponsors in these countries. It was stop these countries going and doing their own thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we had, we had 103 sponsors, and we were in six universities uh, by the end of 2003. And, and what was the ultimate achievement of the Auto ID Center? Um. You know, it's it's still too early to say in a way, but I think we we coalesced a number of of, of companies around the idea that uh, network based sensor technology had a lot of supply chain benefit. Um, we developed uh, we pushed the RFID technology far far further forward than anybody thought we would. I mean, you know, we talked about five cent RFID tags in '99 and. I think some people considered legal action because they thought it was just a, a shocking thing to say that was, you know, ruining their chance to sell $1 RFID tags. <laughs> and, you know, by the end of it, you know, that was the price of an RFID tag. I can't take any credit for that. I told, I told my co-founder, Sanjay Sama, that I needed it to be five cents. And that was basically uh, a nice round number that felt about right. And then he figured out how that might be possible, right? Mm-hmm. right. And, um, and sort of predicted that it would be possible. And he was right. And, uh, and also, we you know developed again. I say we developed standards. Um, companies that sponsored the lab worked together to develop standards. That um, hold on one second. Uh, my iTunes has decided to start playing in my ear. Need to get rid of that. Um, you know, we we developed performance. I mean, we so. Uh, and again, I, I think all, all the auto ideas did a lot of the time was catalyze, right? And coordinate things that might have happened in a slightly more fragmented way anyway. But, um, you know, the performance of RFID tagging, like when you came to see us in like Think Magic in like 2004, 2005, whatever that was, um, you know, we were seeing 20, 25 feet of range and we were able to read, you know, 20, 30, 40 tags a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was unheard of performance in 1999. I mean, you'd get a few feet of range and you'd read five or six tags a second. I mean, no one had ever seen anything like that, right? It it became, um, and that was based on the standard, the 
electronic product code generation two standard that um, uh, that was developed, you know, uh, uh, by the consortium that was sponsoring the Auto ID Center, and that's you know that's what's used in Walmart. I mean, I go into Walmart today and I'll see the sign on the door, but I think I helped write actually as I think about it. But you know, electronic product code EPC tags are used in the store. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we we drove. Uh, some coalescence and some performance and some price. Um, we created a very good architecture, which is not not being used anything like as much as I think it should be. Um, and you know, we gave the world the, the 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 concept of the Internet of Things, which I think has proved very very powerful. Yeah. Uh, would would these things have happened anyway, or would something like it have happened anyway? You know, probably. I think. Even the most successful uh, you know, innovations and technologies, if you're really honest about it, and you're you're a historian, so you know this, um, there are a lot of things going on in parallel that are very similar. So if you take away any one of those planks, even if it's the most successful, you could probably still make the case that something similar would have happened. Yeah. Um, but you know, we certainly, I think, created a lot of awareness, drove a lot of consensus. Uh, pushed technology forward, did a lot of very good research, graduated some very smart PhDs. You know, there are some startups that either did well as a result of the Auto ID Center or probably wouldn't have started at all as a result of the Auto ID Center. And the most beautiful thing for me is, you know, what's actually happened in the last few years is you've got a bunch of graduate students and PhD candidates now who really don't remember a time when the idea of network sensing wasn't, you know, wasn't common. And what they're doing, I mean, that's the reason the Internet of Things has become this big buzzword, is you've got a bunch of 20-somethings and early 30-somethings who don't remember a world where this concept wasn't, you know, wasn't something that people were talking about. And and they're they're the ones who are driving it forward, and they're the ones who will really make it real. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you went you went right out of that and into um, dove, dove into thing magic. Yeah. So I I I Proctor were very very good to me. They said, look, you could probably come to Cincinnati and be a you know, marketing director on a you know a shampoo or something, but we we don't feel like that's what you want to do. And uh, you you know you're free to go. Kind of no hard feelings at the end of the. They were very happy with the outcome. And so, um, I, and I kind of wanted to stay in, in the Cambridge, Boston area if I could. So, um, Think Magic was a startup that came out of MIT, independent of the Auto ID Center. But uh, I gave them one of their first contracts to develop a reference standard for an RFID reader for the Auto ID Center. And you know, I knew that, that those founders were ridiculously smart. Um, and they were very interested in having me go work with them. So, and I was very interested in kind of learning more about tech startups. Uh, I probably could have started something myself, but I wasn't. I wasn't quite ready to to, to believe that I could go from being one of a hundred thousand people in a you know 150, 170 year old corporation like like Procter to you know to start my own company. I wasn't mm. quite sure how, how whether I had enough information to do that. So, yeah, I went to Think Magic. That was that was very successful. I learned a lot. We we grew the company. We got uh, you know, investment from Cisco 
show and other people and um and then I got an offer from another Boston-based startup that was interested in doing kind of sensor technology around energy. Mm-hmm. They were called Enanoc. They'd just gone public on the NASDAQ when I joined them. Mm-hmm. And that was very useful because that gave me a chance to get some experience of a... First of all, I became interested in, you know, Internet of Things for energy and sort of climate change and so on. Um, and it gave me the opportunity to see a company that had just gone public, which was was good and then a couple of years after that I did my own startup which was called Zensi which was a very advanced uh, into things for energy company and actually I started that with with one of my co-founders and Zensi was one of the co-founders of Think Magic mm-hmm. and then another guy uh, who was uh, um, had just graduated from Georgia Tech was on his way to becoming a professor at the University of Washington mm-hmm. Um, and he, he actually got a MacArthur Genius Award just after we started that company, which was oh. very nice. His name is Shwedek Patel, S-H-W-E-T-A-K Patel. Uh-huh. But, um, and that company, and that was, that was a real trip because, so I felt like I was ready, I guess, after the Think Magic, you know, starting from the ground up bootstrap and then Enanoc just gone public and, you know, taught me a lot about energy. I felt like I was ready to do my own thing. So I was president, CEO, and co-founder of, and we started it in about February of 2009, which was the bleakest, bleakest time to do a startup mm-hmm. because it was just after the great crash and, you know, everybody was doom and gloom and, and you know, it was depression and recession and nothing was going on and no one was spending any money and everybody was unemployed. And, you know, and the funny thing is everyone tells you to, like, buy low and sell high. But when, when, when everybody's buying low, nobody wants to buy, right? So, you know, the best time to do a startup actually is what everyone thinks is the worst time to do a startup, right, you know, right. when everyone's doom and gloom. And so we started, you know, with great confidence. We had some amazing technology that could sense how people were consuming energy and how people were consuming water. And it could do it from a, you know, a, a one sensor. We could stick one sensor in your home, basically, and... and and analyze all the noise on your power line and, and figure out, you know, you were turning on your TV and stuff. And um, we started that in like February, March, I think, of 2009. And within like six or seven months, uh, you know, we were about to raise venture capital, but then we started getting acquisition offers. Hmm. And we ended up being acquired by, uh, I negotiated sort of from Thanksgiving through Christmas of 2009. And, and like the 5th of January or something, 2010, we closed a very big deal with uh, Belkin in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And they acquired us. And we got acquired before we'd even taken any investment. So the value of the acquisition was basically split between the co-founders. There was no investors to pay off. Yeah. And, uh, and as part of that deal, I agreed to go work at Belkin for a couple of years. Um, and by the way, when it's January and you're in Boston, mm. um, and someone's offering you a job in, in LA, you know, I like, I went from freezing cold Boston to like an apartment in Santa Monica in space for about two days and found myself like running along the beach in 70 degrees in January in the morning. And I was like, Oh my God, just pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I did, uh, I agreed to do two years at Belkin and I ended up staying for 
so that I could launch. They wanted to, in addition to commercializing the technology they had acquired from us, which I don't want to give too much away, but they've, you know, they've pretty much done that now. I think that will be a commercial product soon. Um, I launched a, a Wi-Fi-based home automation system for them that I sort of developed from the ground up for them. So I sort of saw that through as well. And I got myself a book deal at the beginning of 2013 mm -hmm. and sort of started winding down the Belkin involvement and relocating to Austin, Texas in the summer of 2013 and sort of got my book finished off. And uh, uh, that comes out, out January of 2015. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I stopped at I stopped at Belkin at the end of last year, and now I'm a full time writer. Yeah. Went for my first book to come out, working on my second one. Uh, congratulations! So wait, wait a couple of things. Why yeah. Austin? Why Austin? Yeah. Uh, my children live in Austin. Okay. I met a girl in in Boston and had three kids, and she was from Texas, and uh, she wanted to be in Texas with the kids, so uh, that's why Austin. Okay. Um, my, my children. Tell me about the book. So uh, the book is called How to Fly a Horse, mm -hmm. the Secret History of uh, Creation, Invention, and Discovery. It's being published in January 2014 in the US and the UK, and then translations in various markets will, will follow quickly. Uh, it is actually based on a talk. So. While I was doing all the talks about, you know, Internet of Things and everything, um, people started asking me if I would also talk about my experience of driving innovation and creating and stuff. And um, I was like, oh, okay, I've never really thought about it. But, you know, so I, very early in the experience, like 2000 or so, I started giving talks about, actually, I think the first one in 1999, giving talks about my experience of driving innovation. And that was a talk that, got an amazing reception. So at some, I sort of got refined over the years, and at some point, I guess, 2010, 2011, you know, somebody I knew well came to watch me give the talk in, actually in Napa Valley, and it's like, that's amazing, you have to write that down. I've never heard anything like that before. Why haven't you turned that into a book? And I was like, okay. Um, so I sort of started thinking about how, I, how I'd write this, and, uh, yeah, and I had a good relationship with a non-fiction agent, and I sent him the early stuff. And he was like, oh my God, this is great. And so he went and got me a publisher. But the, the book is not about the Internet of Things and RFID. It's about how, how things really get created. So I tell a lot of stories uh, from a lot of different kind of disciplines and periods. So we talk about, you know, how how one of the first stories in the book is how, how, how the vanilla industry develops uh, and the innovation in, in learning to uh, uh, farm vanilla mm -hmm. um, and how important that was. And then we talk about um, you know, why the Wright brothers were the first people to fly and how Kandinsky painted paintings and, and so on. And so there's many disciplines, but the basic idea is, uh, and I contrast that with some of the prevailing mythology about creativity being rather magical and being the province of genius and, and being the result of moments of inspiration and flashes of insight. And there's quite a lot of academic work that tries to, to systematize this myth of genius and insight. 
and I sort of contrast the the real history of, of creation, which is actually regular people doing ordinary thinking, uh, working very hard and taking taking steps to solve small problems, and then you know solving the problem on the other side of the problem they just solved, and talking about the step by step process of really very ordinary thinking leading to very extraordinary results. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the book makes the case. Uh, using examples from all these different disciplines and periods, that really this idea of genius and inspiration is 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 myth. It's not true. That's mm-hmm. not how things get invented. And, uh, how things get invented is by you know people taking intelligent but but nonetheless very ordinary and recognisable approaches to trying to solve problems, and they spend a lot of time. Um, and uh, it turns out to be, I think, a very inspiring story because it's certainly my experience of innovation. Everybody I've worked with, everybody I've talked to, uh, it's their experience of innovation. Um, and you know, you kind of come away from the book with the feeling that, oh, you know, my, the way I've been doing it isn't wrong, and I'm, I, I can do this. And you know, I've been waiting for these flashes of inspiration that haven't come. Well, I don't need to wait for them anymore, and they're not going to come. You know, I'm, I'm just going to roll up my sleeves and get on with it. Yeah. So that that's what the book is about, um, and it's, yeah, it's it's been fun writing it. I enjoy writing, and I'm you know already working on what I think will be the next one, mm-hmm. and uh, um, that's kind of what I do now, and I love it. Yeah, and you're also ready for other publications like Quartz and such. Um, I've done uh, yeah, I did an op-ed for the New York Times. I did a couple of things. Quartz. Um, a friend of mine is is, a, is one of the editors of Quartz, and uh, I published an extract from the book on Medium, mm-hmm. and they saw it and they wanted me to do something like that for them, and that went well. And then they asked me to do another thing. Um, but most of my writing is uh, is is uh, book related. Um, that tends to be where I focus my time. I mean, I'm a Certainly on the non-fiction side, I, I, you know, I had to, had to do a lot of research just so I could have the confidence to write a sentence. Um, so I'm pretty slow. So the, the, the deadlines and economics of like online journalism um, don't really lend themselves to my my speed and cadence. <laughs> uh, I, 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 you know, I'm. I was reading some, you know, 18th century French uh, botany before you called. For you know, a small part of the book I'm working on right now, mm-hmm. I find myself doing stuff like that a lot because I just don't have the confidence to take a, a secondary source and then make a statement about it. I'm deadly afraid that I'm you know I'm going to be misquoting or misleading or you know the secondary source isn't as reliable as I think it is, so I end up getting deep into stuff. So I'm slow. I'm I, I, I write all day every day and I'm very slow because mm-hmm. I'm always you know, digging deep to try and convince myself that I know what I'm talking about. So, yeah, journalism is uh, is not, I'm not good enough for journalism. I do books. <laughs> so, uh, what, um, to, to kind of close this out a little bit, um, the, uh, in, in this area of, you know, of Internet of Things and, you know, what you've seen through your, through your whole career, I mean, any, any particular thoughts about where we are now and, you know, what's, I mean, it, it has become like the buzzword of the day across technology companies and, and uh, you know, you've got people like 
like John Chambers talking about it as being something that's going to be, you know, a hundred times bigger and more important than the internet that we've already known and, and that kind of thing. I mean, how does that end up, um, uh, you know, kind of going through your brain? Um, I think it's incredibly exhilarating and exciting. I think it's going to be this huge, it is already kind of a huge seismic shift, but it's, it's almost going to be one people don't, don't notice because, um, we've gone from nothing is on the internet to everything else on the internet without really noticing, you know, and, um, and sensor technology is just getting built into things with, again, sort of take it for granted now, um, that your phone knows, you know, where you are and how it's oriented and, um, can take high resolution photographs and so on. So the, um, you know, the interesting thing for me is the, uh, you know, the hardware end of the Internet of Things is progressing very, very rapidly now. Um, and there's a lot of kids getting PhDs and starting companies that are going to make that 10, 10, 10 times truer or 1,000 times truer. We're going to see lots of very low-cost, innovative, networked sensors of various kinds uh, become ubiquitous over the next 10, 15 years. Um, the, the really interesting stuff now is, you know, every solution has a problem on the other side is the huge demand for data science and machine learning that can take all that data and uh, make sense of it, right? And yeah. that's, uh, that really is kind of the next frontier of, of computer science. And there's a lot of really interesting work being done, but I think we're, we're just at the beginning of that. And, um, you know, what I see a lot is, I think, I know there's been a lot of subtle changes that are probably obvious to insightful participants and practitioners and will then become obvious to insightful observant historians later. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we've, we've moved to a world where uh, a lot of ad hoc automatic data, uh, a lot of data is generated automatically on an ad hoc basis by sensing systems. Um, and that will increased by many orders of magnitude as we move to you know, self-driving cars, for example, and many other systems like that. Um, I think what's, you know, one of the interesting things I see is I get, I get a lot of people, and they're always older people, um, who are like, but what about standards is like one of the things I hear. Mm -hmm. And we're in this post-standards, no one seems to have noticed, we're in this post-standards world now. Um, you know, what, for example, Google has demonstrated is it's actually easier, ironically, to do a bunch of amazing data science that can, can make good probabilistic judgments about messy uh, data generated by various systems. Uh, it's much easier to do that, actually, and have the machine take care of the mess than to have a bunch of people sitting in a committee room trying to agree a standard, which will immediately be out of date when they agree it. And you know, the complexity of sensory data is so great that um, that you can't really standardize in advance anyway. You do need to constantly be uh, finessing your algorithm to deal with new anomalies. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the really intriguing things to me is uh, as we get better at data science, um, you know, it's like facial recognition on Facebook and so on. People take it for granted already, but it's really remarkable, right? I mean, that's for free. 
and you're uploading, a, you know, not necessarily a very high resolution image, um, and uh, a free cloud-based system that is also looking at, you know, a couple of million other photographs that just got uploaded uh, can very quickly make a pretty good guess often about who that person is, right? Right, right. Um, you know, that, that's, that's cutting-edge data science right there. It's cutting-edge data science in the absence of standards. Mm -hmm. So what I, what's most exciting to me right now is we are going to have a lot of different, somewhat proprietary, ad hoc, automated data capture systems mm -hmm. of various kinds getting deployed almost unnoticed, you know, in people's pockets or in toll roads or, you know, cars or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's going to be generating a huge amount of data, and that huge amount of data is going to lead to some very interesting sort of Nobel Prize winning approaches to data analysis. Um, and it's going to, going to open the door to a whole new world, and as it starts to do that, I mean, the funny thing about the Google example, again, I think somewhat unnoticed, is Google operates in the absence of standards, becomes popular, and then we have this whole search engine optimization industry, which is trying to make content that's cooperative with Google's algorithm, <laughs> right? Right. So it's, it's just, and, and that's what's going to start happening with a lot of Internet of Things technology as well, that um, as these expert systems, you know, take the ad hoc data and, and create value from it, uh, people are going to start wanting to make their their hardware friendly to the to the data science. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I'm 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 you know this thing is way way past critical mass as far as I'm concerned. It's yeah. it's 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 very real, and I'm proud to have been a little part of it. But we are we are moving to a world where we'll have technology that can create value from all the data in the world that can't be human entered. Yeah. And, you know, to take the 100 times more important or whatever point, all the data in the world that can't be human entered is billions of times greater than all the data in the world that can be human entered. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, you know, it's radical. And you know, one of the things I do often, which people are more comfortable with now than they were a few years ago, I talk about 20th century computing. Uh -huh. you know, we talk about like 19th century trains or, you know, whatever. But we're in the 21st, we're well into the 21st century now, and 20th century computing was computing where there was no automatic data capture. And 21st century computing is computing where there's a lot of automatic data capture. Yeah. You know, 20th century computing was computing that was barely networked. 21st century computing is computing that is always networked. So when this, in this always networked sensor age, um, and the data science is starting to catch up, uh, and is is eliminating the need for standards committees, in my opinion, to a very large extent. Um, and I see what these, you know, twenty somethings are doing, and, and you know, God knows what the kids who grew up on Minecraft are going to do. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah, it's it's phenomenally exciting, um, and I, it's beyond, you know, I guess I got a little bit lucky in the 1990s by noticing something maybe a little bit before. Uh, some other people and giving it a dumb name that stuck, but um, yeah, it's inconceivable to me uh, what's going to get created in the rest of my lifetime. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to watch it and hope I understand it.